Well, what a passage of the Bible. My name's Adam. If uh, we haven't met, great to be with you today. And uh, please uh, keep your Bibles open there to Acts 19, which is where we'll spend our time together. You know, I heard a, a story this week about two shoe salesmen. They decided they wanted to sell their shoes on a tropical island. Now, neither of them had been to this island before, so they decided to travel over there and do some market research. Wanted to know the potential for future sales. After being there for a few days and and traveling around, one of the shoe salesmen sent a telegram back home saying, situation hopeless. They don't wear shoes. The other salesman sent a very different telegram back home. He said, glorious opportunity. They don't have any shoes yet. They both encountered the same situation. They saw the same problem, and yet they viewed it very differently. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but the reading from Acts chapter 19, there were a lot of different problems. There's a lot of different things going on in this chapter. There's ignorance and hostility and rejection. There's persecution and magic and manipulation and demonic possession and even some book burnings. There's even people getting the clothes beaten off them. I mean, this is a wild chapter of Scripture. And it'd be easy for us to kind of read this through and to look at this and think, what a crazy situation. What a hopeless situation. What is this even all about? I'll admit I had some thoughts like that at the start of the week. But I want you to notice the perspective of Luke, the author of Acts. See, after writing all of the events in this chapter and describing them all, he gets to the end and he says this in verse 20. He says, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Despite everything that happens in this chapter, the word of God goes forward. The work of God continues in the world. And this is what Acts 19 is all about. The word of God going forward, the work of God continuing despite difficult problems, despite deceptive people, despite demonic possession, the word of God continues and the work goes forward. Now, this is good news for us because I'm sure you've noticed that we too face some problems. If you watch the news or if you scroll through social media, it's pretty clear that we're facing some challenges. And it can be tempting for us as believers in the Lord Jesus to look at this and to think, will the church survive in Australia? Will the gospel, the good news about Jesus, actually make a difference in our culture to the many, many people around us that don't know Jesus? What what hope can we have for our children for the future? This is why Acts 19 is in the Bible, because it shows us, despite everything that is going on, despite everything that's happening around us, the word of God will go forward. The work of God will continue in the world. Now, if you haven't been around for the last few weeks, we're in a sermon series at the moment looking at the book of Acts. Now, Acts is all about how the 
the, the message of Jesus, the movement of Jesus, which began in Jerusalem in small numbers, spread to the very ends of the earth. And what we've seen in the last few chapters in Acts is that a man named Paul and his companions have been traveling around the ancient world, telling people about Jesus and planting churches. And in the last few weeks, they have arrived on the continent of Europe. Chapter 16, Paul and his companions are in Philippi in Macedonia. In chapter 17, Paul was in Athens. Last week, in chapter 18, Paul and his companions were in Corinth. Well, today, Paul arrives in the city of Ephesus. Now, what do we know about the ancient city of Ephesus? Well, Ephesus was a very significant city. It was one of the biggest cities in the Roman Empire, home to about a quarter of a million people. It was a very wealthy city, a very multicultural city. It was also a very religious, very spiritual, very superstitious city. Ephesus was actually the home to the great temple of Artemis. Artemis was the goddess of fertility, and, and, and Artemis was worshipped in Ephesus. In fact, the temple of Artemis was one of the, the wonders of the ancient world. It was bigger than the Parthenon in Athens. It was made entirely of marble, a very big, a very beautiful building. Historians think it, it might have looked something like this. Very impressive building and really was at the center of life in Ephesus, which you see in the second half of the chapter when the, the, the temple of Artemis is at the center of this riot that breaks out in the city. Very spiritual, very superstitious city. Ephesus also had the largest library in the world, so it wasn't all bad. Yeah, there's some redeeming features of Ephesus. But it's into this kind of spiritual, superstitious context that Paul begins to share the message of Jesus. Paul begins to tell people about Jesus. And as we heard in the reading, it leads to some problems. It leads to some challenges. And so we're going to look at Paul's time in Ephesus under three headings. What we're going to see is that when God is at work in the world, as he is in Ephesus and as he is in our day, there are three things, at least in this chapter, that we see happening. We see lost people coming to Jesus. We see God's word going forward. And we see God's people growing and changing. So let's look at these three things together, these three stories in chapter 19. The first one is this. When God is at work in the world, lost people come to Jesus. You see, the first group of people that Paul runs into in Ephesus is this group of confused disciples. We're told there in the first few verses that they have not received the Holy Spirit. They haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, that the third person of the triune God. Now, this immediately raises some questions. I mean, if they haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit, why are they described as disciples? Can you be a disciple of Jesus and not know about, not have received the Holy Spirit? Of course, the answer is no. The Bible is clear that the moment we place our faith in Jesus, we receive the gift of God's Holy Spirit. We're marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you just one example from the Bible. Paul's letter to the church in the city of Ephesus, Ephesians. Here's what he says to them. Chapter 1, he says, When you believed in Jesus, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are sealed with, marked with, filled by the Holy Spirit. So why are these people in Ephesus, this confused group called disciples? Well, the answer, I think, is that when Paul first met them, they appeared to be disciples. 
They seemed like they were disciples. They knew something about God, it seemed. But Paul had some doubts about them, and so he asks them a few questions. And he goes on and he asks them, well, have you been baptized in Jesus' name? And they reply reply and say, well, we've been baptized in John's baptism. Now, you'll remember that that John is referring to John the Baptist. He was the, the forerunner of Jesus' ministry. He prepared the way for Jesus, pointed people to Jesus. In other words, John was not the point, but he was a pointer. He he was pointing people to Jesus. But these guys have stopped at John's baptism. You know, it's kind of like if you're driving to Sydney and you see a sign that says Sydney, 50 kilometers. So you stop the car and you get out and you sleep under the sign. You're not supposed to stop at the sign. You're supposed to keep going to your destination. Well, these guys have stopped at John. And so Paul begins to tell them about the one that John was pointing to. He tells them about Jesus, God's promised saviour. And they put their trust in Jesus. They're baptised in the name of Jesus as a sign that they now belong to Jesus and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 5 to 7. On hearing this, the message about Jesus, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Now, this is a really beautiful episode. I mean, these people were in the dark. They knew some of the story, but not the whole story. They knew some things about God, but they didn't really know God through Jesus. And so when Paul tells them about Jesus, the lights come on. Their eyes are opened. They go from darkness to light, from death to life. Because this is what God is doing in the world. He's leading people to Jesus, the light of the world. And you know, their story, this group of kind of confused disciples who are a little bit in the dark about God, it kind of reminds me of John Wesley's story. Now, maybe you haven't heard of John Wesley. He lived in the 1700s. Um, His kind of early life, we might say, really set him up, uh, put him in a good place to, to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus. I mean, he was the son of a pastor. He had a very godly, very devoted mum. He went to the best schools, including Oxford. He was a Greek professor. He was an ordained minister. He even became a missionary. He spent some time with the American Indians in Georgia in the United States. So John Wesley kind of looked like he had it all together. But after about two years in America when he was on mission, his mission was a total failure. The ministry really went nowhere. There were very little converts. And he returned to England totally dejected. He wrote in his diary, I went to America to convert the Indians. But oh, who shall convert me? You see, Wesley had become convinced that despite his upbringing, despite his credentials, despite his experience, he didn't really know God. He he knew lots of things about God, but he didn't really know God through Jesus Christ. But on the evening of May 24, 1738, he wrote this in his journal. He said, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street. Now, I'm sure he's not the first that has gone very unwillingly to church. Not you, of course. Thank you. It's one. 
He goes very unwillingly to this service, and this is what he says, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. This is Martin Luther's introduction to his commentary on the book of Romans. Someone's reading that out, as you do. Maybe we should try that one day. He goes on, he says, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, he says, and saved me from the law of sin and death. See, amazingly, John Wesley, this man who had grown up in a Christian home, grown up going to church, been an ordained minister, even been a missionary, he says at that moment, God's spirit opened his eyes, softened his heart, and he threw himself wholly, totally into the arms of Jesus. And I think the question for us is, well, what about me? You know, maybe you, you grew up in a Christian home, maybe you grew up going to church, you went to a Christian school, you've heard lots of things about God, know lots of truths about God, but if you're honest, you'd say, I've never really personally put my trust in Christ. You know, th these truths about Jesus, they've never really gone from my head to my heart. I haven't personally accepted that, that Jesus died in my place for my sin on the cross. And if that's you, then, then today let me encourage you to accept this offer from God. All, all it takes is to talk to God in prayer, to say, sorry for your sin. That's what the Bible means by repentance. To put your trust in Jesus. That's what the Bible means by faith. And then to ask God to, to forgive you, to fill you, and to lead you in his truth. If you'd like some help in that, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to one of our team. You can talk to a Christian friend or family member. Or you can come along to Alpha on Wednesday, 30th of August. You'd be so welcome. Now, if you're thinking at the moment, Adam, I, I think I'm trusting Jesus. I think I know him and am walking with him. I think I've been filled with God's spirit, but I'm not sure. How do you know? I mean, for these guys, it was pretty obvious. They started to speak in tongues and prophesy. But I haven't had an experience like that. So does this mean that I haven't received the Holy Spirit? Let me just say that this type of response, this speaking in tongues and, and prophesying, it, it's not meant to be normative for the Christian experience. It, it's not meant to be typical for all Christians. It doesn't even happen all the time in the book of Acts. In fact, it only happens three times in Acts and only at significant moments. Happens on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit is poured out. Happens in Acts chapter 10 when the gospel goes to the Gentiles for the first time. And it happens here in Acts 19, where these guys are given a special demonstration of the Holy Spirit's filling in their lives. You could argue that this kind of response is the exception, not the rule. It's God's special seal on a significant moment. And so it leaves us with the question, well, how do you know if you've been filled with and received God's Spirit? Well, look what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. No one can say 
Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. If you confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is king, ruler, and Jesus is increasingly, not perfectly, but increasingly becoming the Lord of your life, then that's a sign that the Spirit of God is at work in your life. Pointing you to Jesus, making you like Jesus, helping you to trust Jesus. Because when God is at work in the world, lost people come to Jesus. It's the first thing that we see in this chapter. And it leads us to the second story that we see there in Acts 19. And what we see is that when God is at work in the world, God's word goes forward. You know, when Paul traveled to a new city, he would almost always begin in the synagogue. He would first go to the Jews. And this is what he does here in Ephesus. Look at verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. So Paul spends three months trying to persuade these Jewish people that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. That all of the promises and the prophecies in the Old Testament are pointing to Jesus, God's promised saviour. The one that was promised all the way back in Genesis 3. But not everyone was convinced. Look at verse 9. But some of them became obstinate. It's not like uh, religious people to become obstinate, is it? Didn't mean it, just joking. You're all wonderful. (laughs) Some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. And so the response of these Jews is rejection and ridicule. And isn't this still the response to the gospel today? People still reject the message about Jesus and people still publicly ridicule the message of Jesus. This isn't anything new. It's always been this way. And so what's Paul's response? What does Paul do? Well, look at verse 9. So Paul left them. Paul knew when to move on. He knew when he wasn't wanted. He knew when he was doing more harm than good. And so he moves on. Now, where did he go? What did he do instead? Verse 9. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now, this was most likely a a school um, hall or a public lecture theater. Uh, And Tyrannus was most likely an educator of some kind. His name literally means tyrant. Thanks, mum and dad. But maybe you've had some teachers that you, you, know, you would say fit the bill. Paul, anyway, hires this school hall and he uses it to share the gospel, to talk with people about Jesus. And this doesn't go on just for a week or so. Look at verse 10. This went on for two years. Two years, day in, day out, Paul is engaging with people about Jesus, talking with people about Jesus. What, what was the result? So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. The word of God spread throughout the entire province. Why? Because God's word cannot be stopped. It it can be opposed. It can be rejected. It can be ridiculed. But it cannot be stopped. Paul says in 2 Timothy, the word of God is not chained. You can chain up the messengers, but you cannot chain up the message. You know, I think a little bit about the last few years through COVID. 
Thankfully, it's a bit of a distant memory now, uh, hopefully. Uh, But if you said back in 2019, before it all happened, that over the next few years, all churches are going to be shut down for a period of time. You know, all churches are not going to be able to gather in person. And it's not just going to happen once, it's going to happen a few times over those few years. You'd probably think, oh man, that's going to be a disaster. That is just going to like decimate the church. And here we are on the other side of COVID. And for us as a church, the opposite has happened. We've grown in number. We've reached more people. The word was not stopped. The word went out and it continues to go out. Because the word of God cannot be stopped. An example of this is China. You know, during the cultural revolution in the, the 60s and 70s, Christianity was effectively banned in China. Missionaries were thrown out of the country, uh, believers were arrested, Bibles were destroyed, churches were looted. Now, what was the result? Well, over the past four decades, Christianity has grown faster in China than anywhere else in the world. It's estimated that, that in the last four decades, Christianity in China has grown from 1 million people to 100 million people. Praise God. Because the word of God cannot be stopped. And, and this is what we see happening in Ephesus. The word of God is going out. It's opposed, it's rejected, it's ridiculed, but it's not stopped. And it's the same for us in our day as well. But as this word spreads in Ephesus, it also leads to some, shall we say, interesting encounters. And this leads us to the third story in Acts 19 and our third final and final point. You see, when God is at work in the world, lost people come to Jesus. God's word goes forward. And thirdly and finally, God's people grow. You know, as Paul ministered in Ephesus, he was not simply preaching. He was also, we're told, performing miracles. Look at verses 11 and 12. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to those who were ill, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll remember a similar episode from the life of Jesus. Jesus is walking through a crowd, and there's a lady there, and she reaches out to touch his cloak, and she is immediately healed of her disease. Well, something similar is happening for Paul. People are coming into contact with his hankies and his aprons, and they're being healed and delivered. It's pretty out there, isn't it? It's pretty amazing, maybe even unbelievable for some of us. What's going on here? How should we understand this? Well, a few things I think we need to keep in mind. Firstly, this is God's power at work, not Paul's. Look at verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. It doesn't say Paul did extraordinary miracles. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. These are not magical hankies. There's nothing particularly powerful about Paul. This is God's power at work. And we shouldn't be surprised that the God who made the world is able to intervene in the world in extraordinary and miraculous ways. And this leads us to the second point. Even compared to other miracles, these miracles were extraordinary Look at verse 11 again. God did, not just miracles through Paul, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. That word translated extraordinary means special or singular or remarkable. Even compared to other miracles, these miracles were extraordinary. 
This means what's happening here is not typical. It's not ordinary. It's not common. And the implication is that we shouldn't expect this to be normal for us. I mean, if you're a believer in Jesus, don't donate your used hankies to your local GP. Or or don't buy a, a, a hanky from some TV preacher. These were extraordinary miracles done through the Apostle Paul. Now the question is, why? Why these miracles? Why in that place? Why at that time? Why? I think there are a few reasons why. And the first is the unique context of Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus was a very spiritual, very superstitious, very religious city. God, in doing this, is confronting the idols of that city. Don Carson, the biblical scholar, he puts it this way. He says, these miracles describe the confrontation of the power of the living God with a city that was deeply interested in magic and the occult. God's confronting the idols of this city. The second reason I think you know, that we've got these amazing miracles in this place at this time is the unique position of Paul. Paul had a unique position in church history. He was an apostle, capital A. He was God's authorized messenger of God's authorized message. And to authenticate the message, God enabled Paul to perform the miracles. In fact, 2 Corinthians 12 says that the mark of a true apostle, a true messenger of God, is the ability to perform signs and wonders and miracles. And this was done to authenticate the message. The miracles were not the point. The message was the point. But the miracles reinforced it. Now, now why is the, the, the message the point? Because the message is what saves us. You know, what we need to be saved, what we need to come to to know God, enter into relationship with God, it's not necessarily to see a display of God's amazing power. It's to hear the message of God's amazing grace in Jesus. This was the message that the apostles went around sharing. This is the message that was authenticated by their miracles. And this is the message that's now recorded for us in the Bible. And this is probably the reason why we don't see the same kinds of miracles today. Because the message that the apostles were preaching, the message that the miracles were authenticating, is now the message that's been preserved for us in the Scriptures. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't do miracles anymore. Or God can't do miracles anymore. Of course not. He's God. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. And there are many stories of God doing miraculous things all throughout the world to draw people to himself, absolutely. But often, this happens in places where God's word is not as readily available, where it's not as accessible. Because the danger here is that we focus on the miracles and not the message. And I think to highlight the danger, Luke shows us in the next section a group of people who made this mistake. You know, there's this group of brothers in Ephesus. They're known as the seven sons of Sceva. Sounds like a heavy metal band. Now, they probably saw what the apostle Paul was doing, and they thought, well, that is a pretty cool party trick. I like that. I want to be able to do that. And so they started, you know, going up to demons and saying, we command you in the name of Jesus, you know, the Jesus that Paul's always talking about, we command you to come out. Now, as you'd expect, it doesn't go the way they were hoping. 
Look at verse 15. One day the evil spirit answered them. Immediately you're thinking, okay, this is not going to go well for them. Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Talk about the ultimate burn. I mean, their day job is driving out demons, and then a demon says to them, bro, I don't even know who you are. Now look what happens next. Verse 16. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now, if you're in a fight and by the end of it, you're not only bleeding, but naked, you've lost that fight. (laughs) If you lose your clothes, you lose. (laughs) Now, despite this being a little bit funny, Luke is making a serious point here. It's that Jesus cannot be manipulated or used. The name of Jesus is not some magical key. Jesus doesn't exist to serve our purposes. We exist to serve his purposes. His is the name that is above every other name. He is the one true living God, the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And this explains why when the word gets out about what happens with these sons of Sceva, the result is that in Ephesus, people become fearful. They begin to to revere the name of Jesus, recognize that he is unlike other gods. He is above all other gods. He is held in honor. And I want you to notice what happens in verse 18, because there are some who were believers in Jesus. And when they hear about what has happened... Look what they do. You see, there's this group of believers. They're still dabbling in sorcery. They're still mixed up with other idols and gods from Ephesus. And when they hear about what has happened, they realize it's wrong. Look at verse 18, 19. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. You know, this right here is a picture of spiritual growth and maturity. These were believers in Jesus. And then they've come to realize that what they were doing was wrong. You see, when we come to Jesus, we're not made perfect in an instant. At least I wasn't. Maybe you were. I doubt it, though. You see, we are justified in an instant. We're brought into God's family in an instant. But then God begins the process of changing us and growing us and making us more like Jesus. Theologians call it sanctification. That by his spirit, through his word and with his people, God begins to change us and grow us. He begins to show us areas of our lives where we need to change, where we need to repent. Things that we need to bring to him. Things that we need to confess to him and others. He begins to shape us and change us and mold us. And this is a lifelong journey. And often, it will be costly. I mean, for these Christians in Ephesus, when they realized that what they were doing was wrong with the sorcery, that they brought these scrolls to be burned, and the cost of these scrolls was massive. In modern terms, it was millions and millions of dollars. But this is what following Jesus looks like. If we learn to trust him and obey him, even when it costs us. So what about you? What step might God be calling you to take? 
What, what do you sense God is calling you to do? To get rid of? To talk to someone about? Even if it's valuable to you. Now, it's costly to follow Jesus. Jesus didn't say, take up your couch and follow me. He said, take up your cross and follow me. Now, the good news of the gospel is is that though obedience to Jesus is costly, it's nothing compared to the price that Jesus paid for us. To set us free from sin and Satan and death. And it's nothing. What what we give up, it's nothing compared to the riches that Christ gives to us. The life that he offers to us. There's nothing we could give up for Jesus that would not be totally and eternally worth it. And so getting back to our questions from the start. Will the church survive in Australia? Will the gospel make a, a difference in our culture. What will the future be like for our children? Acts 19 shows us that we have every reason to hope. Because when God is at work in the world, lost people come to Jesus. God's word goes forward and God's people grow and change to his glory. And so let's keep following Jesus together. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word cannot be stopped, that your work of rescuing sinners, of changing and shaping and growing us, that it continues. Lord, we look around and and, and we can be tempted to be overawed by the challenges around us. But help us to see, Lord, that if you are for us, nothing and no one can be against us. Lord, help us to to press on and press in to all that you have for us. Lord, for those of us that would say, I've never really placed my faith in Jesus, then let today be that day where we put ourselves totally in his good and gracious and healing hands. Lord, thank you that your word will go forward and that your work will continue no matter what comes against it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.